In the 18th century, there was a heresy that broke out among evangelicals in Scotland that came to be known by the name of Sandemanianism. It was called that after one of its main teachers, Robert Sandeman. And the error raised a question about the nature of saving faith. What does it mean to trust Christ? What does faith that reconciles a person to the Lord Jesus actually entail? Sandemanianism teaches that faith in Jesus is nothing more than intellectual assent. Or the little phrase that they use in order to describe their belief is that it is the bare belief of the bare truth. Now, that teaching exists today. There are those who say that that's all that it takes to be a Christian is just believe facts that are in the Bible. Intellectually acknowledge the truth of those facts. But is that what the Bible means by saving faith? Is it enough to simply acknowledge that Jesus Christ lived, that he was crucified, that on the third day he rose from the dead, and that if you intellectually acknowledge the reality of those historical events, that then you're saved? Well, if a person wants to be made right with God, and he understands that the Bible says the only way to do that is through faith, It is vitally important to understand what such faith entails. It's important because of the warnings that we have in the scripture about false faith or other kinds of faith that aren't saving. I mean, Jesus himself warned about this in Matthew chapter 7 at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount when he uttered those those haunting, sobering, Warning words. Not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Well, automatically, that ought to cause us to sit up and listen. And what a frightening thought that not everybody who says to Jesus, Lord, is going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. He goes on and he says, on that day, speaking of the day in judgment, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord. Didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do many mighty works in your name? And Jesus says, I will say to them, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I never knew you. I mean, what a haunting thought. Could it be that there are people in this room This morning, who say, Lord, Lord, but on the day of judgment, would hear our Savior speak those words, depart from me, I never knew you. Jesus is giving the kind of warning that we find elsewhere in the scripture. For example, at the end of John chapter 2, John tells us that after seeing the miracles Jesus did, many people believed in his name. But then John adds, but Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew what was in people. He had nobody, he had no reason for anybody to teach him what was inside people. He understood people and he knew, he recognized as the son of God that their belief in him was superficial. 
It was insincere. It wasn't saving. Well, this is the same point that we find made in James chapter 2 when James contrasts living faith with dead faith. And he warns about dead faith. And in that point, in that argument that he makes in that chapter, he says, even the demons believe. Okay. If demons believe in God, then mustn't we conclude that there's got to be something different in the kind of faith demons have and the faith that we're called upon to have in order to be reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ? Well, obviously, that is true. If we're going to know God through faith in Jesus Christ, the faith that the Scripture says transforms life, then we need to be clear on what that faith entails. For the last couple of weeks, we have been looking in Romans chapter 4 at the Apostle Paul speaking to this very issue. He uses the Old Testament patriarch Abraham as an example of faith. And he does this in order to commend us, to commend Abraham to us as an example of faith. Now, as we have worked our way through the bulk of this chapter over the last couple of weeks, what we have seen is that Abraham is set forth as an example to show us how God justifies sinners, how God forgives sinners of sin, how he declares them to be righteous in his sight. And Abraham is a model. He's an example to show us that God does this on the basis of grace. It's not on the basis of anything you do or I do. It's not on the basis of any intention that we have, any new leaf we turn over, but rather it's on the basis of what Jesus has already done. Jesus came into the world to live the kind of life that God requires of every one of us, but we cannot live. And then he laid down his life on the cross under the wrath of God against sin, paying for sin, so that he becomes the substitute, the representative of anyone and everyone who turns from sin and trusts in him. Paul uses Abraham to make this point. If anybody's going to be accepted by God, If anyone's going to have sin forgiven, it will be exactly in the same way that Abraham was forgiven of sin. It will be by trusting in the provision that God makes through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. To be a spiritual child of Abraham is to have the same kind of faith that he had. So Paul gives us a profile of Abraham's faith in the last several verses of Romans chapter 4. Those verses comprise our text for today. Romans 4, verses 18 through 25. If you're using one of the Bibles found in the chair in front of you, you'll see this passage on page 942. I encourage you to get a copy of the Scripture open in front of you and to keep it open because I just want to walk through these verses with you this morning to show how we see from Abraham's example a profile of saving faith. So hear the word of the Lord beginning in verse 18 of Romans chapter 4. Excuse me. Speaking of Abraham, Paul continues his argument and says, In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. 
No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But let the words, but but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. What Paul is telling us is that justifying faith, the faith that justifies, directs us to live our lives on the basis of what God has said. Justifying faith causes us to live our lives on the basis of what God has said. Now again, it's important to remember the whole purpose for which Paul is invoking Abraham as an example of what faith looks like. He's doing it so that we might be justified in the same way that Abraham was. So that we might come by God's grace to trust Christ and through faith receive all of the blessings of salvation that Jesus Christ provides. That's the last three verses of the chapter. Paul says this wasn't just for Abraham's sake, but for our sake today as well. We're not going to have time to look at all those verses today, the last few verses as we hope to in the weeks ahead. But remember, as we think about Abraham, this is for our benefit. This is Paul's instructing us. This is not just a history lesson. It's not a biography lesson. Abraham's experience gives us insight into the nature of justifying faith. So what does the passage teach us about the nature of the kind of faith that justifies? There are four characteristics that I want to point out to you from these verses. The first is saving faith, justifying faith, trusts God to keep his promise. It trusts God to keep his promise. Faith is always based on God's word alone. If you look at verse 18, Paul makes this statement. Abraham believed that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told. And then he quotes from that passage in the Old Testament. So shall your offspring be. Abraham believed God. How many times have we seen that in this passage already in Romans 4? We see it elsewhere in Scripture too. That's the thing that commends Abraham as an example to us, is that he believed God. In other words, he believed what God said, what God actually spoke to him. He took to heart the very words that God uttered to him. He oriented his life around those words He made decisions that affected him and his family and others based upon what God had actually said. And then Paul quotes from Genesis 15, 5, a portion of what God said to Abraham, so shall your offspring be. Now, that's a a summary statement as Paul is using it here for everything that God promised to Abraham. We've looked at that in weeks past. He promised him land. He promised him uh, a seed that would be the Messiah. He promised him... uh, Children that would be so numerous, it would be greater than the stars of the heaven or greater than the dust on the earth. But here he is summarizing all that God said as a reference point for us to make sure we recognize it was God's word that Abraham believed. In verses 20 and 21, you see specific references to promises that God made to Abraham. And Abraham believed them. This is a vitally important point. 
If we fail to understand this, if you miss this point that faith believes what God says, it believes his word, then you will be set up to be misled. You will be set up to perhaps have your spiritual life ruined as has happened to many others. On December 14, 2019, a little two-year-old girl by the name of Olive Heiligenthal died unexpectedly. Her parents are members of Bethel Church in Redding, California, a church that is a part of the New Apostolic Reformation movement, a movement that is fraught with errors, particularly on this issue of faith. Olive's parents, together with Pastor Bill Johnson, began to pray for little baby Olive to be raised from the dead. And they issued calls to Christians throughout the world to join them in this prayer. They thought they could bring it to pass by their faith. They said, we're acting in faith. In fact, two days after Olive died, her mother, Callie, issued this public statement that says, we are asking for bold, unified prayers from the global church to stand with us in belief that God will raise this little girl back to life. Wake Up Olive was the campaign that went viral. After a week, the little girl still dead, the church gave up and they began to plan her memorial service. You know, the death of a child is tragic. Just horrific pain to parents and others who knew and loved that family. But whenever you start saying that by faith, we're going to raise this child from the dead, you're compounding pain with multiple expressions that will bring sorrow upon sorrow and set you up for all kinds of spiritual disaster. What they were doing was calling upon people to believe what God has never promised to do. Can God raise a little girl from the dead? Absolutely. Absolutely. We see examples in the Bible of people physically dying, being raised physically up by the power of God. It's not a question of his ability. It's a question is, has God said he would do that? Has God promised to raise any two-year-old child from physical death to physical life? No, he hasn't. And to say, we're going to believe that God's going to do what God's not promised to do, it's not the faith that the Bible commends. That's not faith. It may be positive thinking. It might be something far worse than that. But to claim things that God has not promised, even good things, even godly things, and say, by faith, we're going to receive these things when God himself has not promised to provide them to you, is to put you on a pathway that you might be thinking you're walking in faith, when in reality, you're walking in presumption. Biblical faith, the kind of faith that unites you to God, takes God at his word. It trusts God to keep his promises, what he has actually said. It's based upon the scripture. To believe that God is going to do something he's not promised is not the kind of faith Abraham had. Maybe it's positive thinking. It could well be deadly presumption. But it's not biblical faith. Because biblical faith trusts God to keep his promises. Now, 
Abraham heard God speak audibly to him. We have no reason to expect God to do that for us today. Because God has given us his final word. And so we rest our faith not looking for, anticipating some type of of supernatural revelation coming to us from above, but rather we rest it on what God has once and for all time said in Scripture. And we take God at his word. And if he's not said it, then we will not be presumptuous to claim that we can have it. If you don't know God's word, then you see how easy you might become prey to this type of error to encourage you to be a person of faith. Just believe that God's going to do this when God's not promised. God's not revealed that he's going to do this. You'll be susceptible to being led astray by wrong ideas of what it means to walk in faith because faith always takes God's word as its foundation. Along with this, we see in the text that faith is always God-centered. Look at verse 20. Paul says, no unbelief made Abraham waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Faith glorifies God. Faith doesn't center on faith. It doesn't call attention to to itself saying, look how strong I'm believing. Look what I'm believing to receive from God. Faith doesn't focus on the believer. It's not about promoting the one who is trusting. Faith focuses on the one who is trusted. Faith calls attention to the object of faith. The promise that God made Abraham was staggering. He was going to become the father of many nations. From him would come the one who would be the savior of the whole world. And he and his children, God promised Abraham, would inherit this world by believing God. By taking God at his word, he honored God. He glorified God. Listen to what the 16th century Protestant reformer John Calvin has to say on this point. Calvin writes, No greater honor can be given to God than by sealing his truth by our faith. On the other hand, no greater insult can be shown to him than by rejecting the grace which he offers us or by detracting from the authority of his word. For this reason, the main thing in the worship of God is to embrace his promises with obedience. True religion begins with faith. You honor God by trusting him, taking him at his word. You insult God when you hear what he has to say and you just decide to live differently from that and not trust him. Why? Why? Because when you trust God and you order your life according to his word, what you are saying is there is something so great, so dependable, so worthy in God that I am determined to put all my eggs in that basket. He's the one who's going to hold me. He's the one who's going to perform according to what he has said he will do. And I am banking my life on it. And when you refuse to trust him and you read his word, you say, yeah, I see that. And I know, yeah, that's true. But, you know, man, I got to live a real life. I mean, I got practical issues I got to deal with then what you're saying is God's really not all that glorious. He's not all that trustworthy. To trust in the promises of God is to point away from yourself and to point to the one who has made the promises. Now, this is a a great point, and, and I know some of you here this morning, you're unbelievers, 
We're so glad you're here. You know you're always welcome to come to our gatherings like this. But I really don't want you to miss this point, so I just want to underscore it for you for a moment. Do do you see what Paul is teaching us here? He, He is telling us that God has made incredible promises in his word. And if you will look away from yourself and just take God at his word, then you will experience the blessings of those promises. Think about it. He sent his son into the world. God gave up his only begotten son. Jesus became a real man, lived among us. He did everything that God requires of mankind. He earned righteousness, righteousness that we don't have that God requires and we can't provide. And having earned that righteousness and a perfect life of obedience to God's commandments, he laid down his life on the cross and endured God's just judgment against sin so that whoever trusts him will be reconciled with God. I want you to hear this morning some of the promises God makes based upon what Jesus has done. In John 3.36 it says, Whoever believes the Son shall have eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Believe the Son, you'll have life. That's the promise. Or when Jesus was speaking to a crowd that had gathered around in Matthew chapter 11, he says this, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke on you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. Some of you here this morning, you've been looking for rest for years. You'd love to know what it is to go to bed at night with a sense that God really does accept you. Jesus says, come to me, come to me, and you'll have rest. Are you going to take God at his word? You're going to believe this promise? God spoke it. And if you believe it, he will be glorified and an eternal good will come to you. And so we plead with you today to take God at his word. Later in Romans, Paul is going to make this same point in chapter 10. He says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You believe that. Do you believe that? Take God at his word. Just simply acknowledge, God, you're true. You would never lie. And I'm going to start believing you. I'm going to take you at your word today. If you trust God in this way, and you look to the provision he's made in Jesus Christ with that simple faith and orient your life To your Lord and Master Jesus Christ, you'll receive forgiveness of sins. You'll be reconciled to your Creator. God promises that. So honor the Lord. Take Him at His word. Trust Him. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Did did you hear the psalmist's words earlier when Don read Psalm 116? This is great. The psalmist is thinking about all that God's done for him, how good and kind he's been. And he says, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? How am I going to pay God back? You ever think like that? How am I going to pay God back? Well, you can't pay God back. God doesn't relate to us on the basis of some kind of business transaction. What shall I render to the Lord then for all of his benefits to me? This is what he says. I know what I'll do. I'll take the cup of salvation. (laughs) What? The cup that God gives to me. The salvation that God provides in his son, Jesus Christ. I'll take it to myself. How do you honor the Lord? You take him at his word and you receive his son, the Lord Jesus, and you get saved. (laughs) You get forgiven. 
benefit comes to you, glory comes to God. So trust Jesus Christ. Salvation comes through that faith. Glory goes to God through that faith. Justifying faith, trust God to keep his promise. Secondly, it honestly faces reality. Justifying faith honestly faces reality. To have faith doesn't mean you put on rose-colored glasses through which to view the world. It doesn't mean you ignore reality, especially difficult realities. True faith never pretends. It, It never looks away from problems hoping that somehow they might just disappear, but rather true faith always looks problems, difficulties, obstacles face up. Look at verses 18 and 19. We we see the very passage begins with this, in hope he believed against hope. What an accurate description of faith. He believed in hope against hope. It's in hope. This is a reference to the kind of hope that comes first from knowing that God is the God who raises the dead. In hope, in that kind of hope, he believed. Verse 17 says that when God spoke to Abraham, Abraham believed him. He stood before this God who calls things that don't exist into existence and gives life to things that are dead. Abraham had that sense that this is the God who's able to raise the dead. The very thing that we come to see more clearly in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So that the hope that we have that God does this should be far stronger than that which Abraham had as he was looking through that glass darkly in types and shadows of the truth that God indeed is this kind of God. So Paul says it was in hope, in confidence in God, That Abraham believed the promises that God gave him. But you notice, it's also against hope. He believed in hope. In hope he believed. But he also believed against hope. What's he talking about? In the face of many hopeless realities. Look at verse 19. God comes to Abraham. He says, hey, I'm going to give you a son. You're going to be the father of many nations. All this is going to be yours. And you won't be able to count your offspring. And from you, all the nations on the earth are going to be blessed. And he's 100 years old, still waiting on that promise to be fulfilled. His wife's about 90. Good as dead. Promise of God. Realities. Looks like impossibilities. Promise of God. So it's against hope. Against the circumstances that would tell him there's no way that's ever going to happen. In hope, the God who raises the dead who spoke, he believes. So he sets his eyes upon those unseen realities and he rests in the promise God made him. He had so many reasons not to take God at his word and yet he believed You look at verse 20, it says, no unbelief made him waver. And again, he had many reasons to be unbelieving. And yet, he didn't turn away from God's word. Now, this is the way that saving faith operates. It's confident in God. It takes God at his word. When the Bible says something that seems to be contradicted by the evidence surrounding us, our senses scream out that can't be true. Faith says we're going to take God at his word. We're going to believe God anyway. We see this wonderfully illustrated one morning in Luke chapter 5 when Jesus 
comes to uh, the Sea of Galilee, and there's a crowd there who wants to hear him teach, and so he gets into a boat, uh, a fishing boat, Peter's boat. Peter had been fishing all night, hadn't caught a thing, and he's cleaned his nets. So you imagine a fisherman having just been all night fishing and been skunked, got nothing. And Jesus gets in the boat, teaches, then he says, hey, Peter, let out into the deep part of the lake and drop your nets down. These clean nets. He just finished cleaning. Jesus is a carpenter. Peter's a professional fisherman. And he says, go to the deep, drop your nets. And Peter says, Lord, we've been out there all night, no fish. And then he says this in Luke 5, 5, nevertheless, at your word, I'll do it. Nevertheless. Brothers and sisters, that's faith. That's faith. It takes God at his word. When you look around, you see all reasons, lots of reasons not to take him at his word, not to believe him, not to go and orient your life around what he's revealed. And yet, you know he's God. You know he's your Lord. And so you say, okay, so many levels, this doesn't make sense. Nevertheless, at your word, I'm going to live right here. I'm going to stake my claim, orient my life according to it. There are two temptations that we must always resist when it comes to living by faith. One is thinking that if we're going to trust God, we must deny the existence of real obstacles. And so you'll sometimes hear people say, oh, don't don't talk about the negatives. Don't even voice them. You know, you'll, you'll poison something or you'll ruin something if you admit the real challenges in front of you. Well, that's not biblical faith. Biblical faith looks at the challenges straight on. But a second temptation is letting ourselves believe more strongly in the obstacles that we see than we do in God who has given us his word. So, yes, we must take note of the realities, the things that we can see, things we can experience with our senses, things that scream at us day in and day out, that if we go the way God says, we'll be foolish. But we must never forget that the God who has spoken to us is the God who raises the dead. So we trust him. We depend upon him. Justifying faith trusts God to keep his promise. It honestly faces reality. Thirdly, it includes a measure of assurance. Look at verse 21. He says that Abraham was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Now, this point has been a hotly debated theological issue for 500 years of Protestant evangelical church history. The the debate centers on this question, is assurance of the essence of faith? In other words, can you have genuine faith and not have any assurance? Or if you have genuine faith, must you also have assurance? Is assurance of the essence of faith? I'll not bore you with all the details of that theological debate, but it's important and it's fascinating And let me just commend to you our church's confession of faith in chapter 18. It says this, making a very important distinction and helpful guidance at this point. It says, speaking of the assurance of faith, this infallible assurance, that is full assurance that the author of Hebrews speaks of, that is possible that we ought to strive for, this infallible assurance is not such an essential part of faith that it is always fully experienced alongside faith. But true believers may wait a long time and struggle with many difficulties before obtaining it. In other words, you can have true faith 
and, and not always have this, this infallible assurance of the things that the faith lays hold of. But Paul here is saying that there is a measure of assurance in the faith that justifies. He says Abraham was fully convinced. This means he trusted God to do what God had said. His faith included a conviction that God would do what he said he would do. You cannot trust God to save you and not be convinced that he will do so. Now that conviction can be stronger and weaker at times, but you can't say, I'm trusting God savingly, but I'm really not sure he's going to save me. Saving faith acknowledges the reality that God who promised will do what he said. To take God at his word means that we will be convinced that he will keep his word. Now, it doesn't mean, however, that Abraham had infallible assurance at every step of his walk of faith. All you have to do is read Genesis chapters 12 through 25, and you'll see that. I mean, after God spoke to him and Abraham believed him and received the promises and, and received the declaration of being justified in God's sight, after that experience, they go to Egypt and he tells Sarah to lie to Pharaoh. He says, tell Pharaoh you're my sister because I'm afraid he's going to kill me if he finds out you're my wife. It doesn't look like strong faith, does it? And he did it again later whenever they go into the region of Gerar and, and uh, the king is Abimelech and, and he says to Abimelech, she's my sister because he said when he was called on it later, I was afraid, I was afraid you might kill me. So when Paul says that he was fully convinced, he's not saying that Abraham's faith went from zero to complete and stayed there for all of his life. Rather, he means that there is an element in saving faith that lays hold of God. And even when it is tried and even when it might wane very low, it remains true. You see, once you come to faith in Christ... Your faith doesn't operate like a light switch on and off, where it's bright or it's dark. But there can be degrees of strengthening, and there can be degrees of weakening in faith as well. We see this in Paul's language. If you look at verse 19, it says he did not weaken in faith, which means that you can weaken in faith. Verse 20, he grew strong in his faith, so that's also possible for us to grow strong in faith. We see this dynamic of faith that has a measure of assurance but doesn't always have complete and infallible assurance. We see it in the example given to us in the Gospels in Mark chapter 9 when this father who has a son that's possessed by a demon comes and just throws himself at Jesus' mercy. He says, if you can, will you heal my son? Jesus says, if, if, all things are possible to those who believe. And the man, you remember what he said? Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. What's he, that's a cry of sincere faith. I do believe. I want to believe more. I'm battling these, these temptations to fall into unbelief. Faith takes God at his word, and it's necessarily convinced that God can and will do what he says in his word. But this confidence is in God. It's not in our faith. That's why Jesus said in Luke chapter 17, verses 5 and 6, that it's not the amount of faith you have, 
but rather the object of the faith that you have that enables you to do what God has said he will do. The disciples came to Jesus on that occasion. They asked him to increase their faith, and this is what he said in response. If you had faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. It's not the content. It's not the amount of your faith, how big it is. It's what your faith is rooted in, what the object of your faith is. Even small faith that takes God at his word will receive what God has promised. Now, that's a wonderful truth. But brothers and sisters, God forbid that any one of us should ever be satisfied with small faith. The prayer of the disciples is a good prayer. Lord, increase our faith. We should want to grow in faith. We can grow in faith. Well, how does it happen? How can Christians grow in faith? Paul explains it later in Romans chapter 10 when he says, Faith comes by hearing, hearing through the word of Christ. You want to grow in faith? It's not going to happen apart from God's word. You want to grow in faith? Then you must learn the word. You must grow in your relationship with God. You must grow to know more of God. And the only way that you can do that is through the ministry of His Word and Spirit. So you must give yourself to the Scripture. Read. Meditate on the Word. Keep yourself under the teaching of the Word. Learn the Word. Memorize the Word. Pray for grace to living according to the Word. In doing so, you will grow in faith. But if you neglect God's word, if God's word is not important to you, then don't be surprised when you find yourself just tossed to and fro through belief and unbelief and struggling to lay hold of what God said in his word. Because faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of Christ. So justifying faith, trust God to keep his promise. It honestly faces reality. It always includes a measure of assurance. Finally, justifying faith accepts being declared righteous before God. That's verse 22. This is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Such faith justifies. It secures a right standing before God by becoming the means whereby the righteousness of Jesus Christ is imputed to us. You see, what God requires, we can't provide. He requires perfect obedience to his commandments. And we just, we can't do that. Sin has wrecked us in such a way that we're not able in this life to perfectly attain the righteousness that God requires. But Jesus has attained it. Jesus has done it. And we get in on what Jesus has done, not by doing, but by trusting By looking to him, believing him, when you receive Christ in this way, you're declared righteous in God's sight. That's the only way that sinners can attain righteousness from God. Now, verses 23 through 25, Paul brings this home to a closer application for us today. But again, God willing, we'll come back to these verses in the future to see specifically how Paul underscores their relevancy in our modern era. Paul goes to such great lengths to describe Abraham's faith for us because he wants us to see how God justifies sinners. It wasn't just for Abraham's sake that God justified him, but the account of his being justified by faith was written for our sakes 
as well. Paul wants us to understand Abraham's faith. And that's why he explains it the way that he does. Abraham lived the way that he lived because of faith. 